Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with the artist and filmmaker, Martine Sims. So cool. I'm a big fan of Martine's work. I'm mostly familiar with her publishing work, but tell me what drew you to talking to her. Well, she has a new show up at Spruce Moggers called Loser Back Home. So that was the occasion of our discussion, but I had already wanted to talk to her about her film, The African Desperate, since it came out in the fall. So, and we do talk about that a bit. The film is kind of like a send up of art school, but there's, mm. it's not satire. It's reality. Like, I didn't think it was very uh, outlandish. I thought it was very accurate, the film, from my own experience of briefly being in art school. Not for uh-huh. art, but for writing at CalArts. So there was that. And I think Martina is this kind of artist. She does so much and her work is so dimensional and it's so narrative. In my mind, she's like a writer. Mm-hmm. A lot of artists that I like, actually, that it's almost what they're doing to me. It's I think of it very much in line with the writers I love. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of her work. She's so funny. In this show that's at Spruce Moggers right now, she makes a lot of objects, which I, I have mm-hmm. to say, like I hadn't seen many of her like sculptures or paintings. I just mostly know her through her videos. So it was cool to see that she actually like, makes things too, you know, sculpture. And it was great. great. She, she cracked me up. It was a really fun conversation. And the show is up until August 26th for those in Los Angeles. And the film is available on Mubi. And you can also read the script from Nightboat Books. Wow, look at that. Well, this sounds like a great conversation. I think we've got one plug to make. For <laughs> for us. <laughs> yes. So the plug is that we're still in fun drive mode here at LARB. And if you join right now, you get a lot of great stuff. I'm not going to read the whole list, but I just want to talk about this hat that we keep mm. on talking about. I want to say that I am traveling right now. I'm speaking to you from Italy. Sardinia. Oh my gosh. Where yesterday yeah. I walked on an island full of donkeys. Yeah, it was amazing. They were w- white donkeys and just regular ones. They're all very small. It was like my dream come <gasps> true. It's called Asinara. Wow. But, but it was incredibly hot. And if I didn't have a hat, I just would have been so sunburned, even though I had sunscreen on. So there's no better time to give to LARB, get this great hat help us. You get all kinds of other stuff like the quarterly, you get some discount cards at local bookstores. You can check it all out at lareviewofbooks.org slash join in June. Keep it all going. Amazing. And maybe if you get the hat, you'll be magically transported to an island full of little white donkeys. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. Let's talk to Martine. Great. I'm so excited to be speaking with the artist and filmmaker Martine Sims today. Her work encompasses video, sculpture, painting, photography, installation, publishing, and clothes. And she has exhibited it widely, including in solo exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, 
and ICA London. She is a recipient of a Creative Capital Award, a United States Artist Fellowship, the Tiffany Foundation Award, and the Future Field Arts Prize. She also runs the Press Dominica Publishing and hosts a monthly radio show on NTS. Last fall, she released her first feature narrative film, The African Desperate, which she co-wrote and directed. The film takes place over the course of 24 hours in the life of an artist named Palace on the day she receives her Master's of Fine Arts at a small college in upstate New York, and it is now streaming on movie. Martine joins me today to discuss The African Desperate, as well as her new exhibition, Loser Back Home, which is running this summer at Spruce Moggers in Los Angeles until August 26. Thank you so much, Martine, for being here. Thanks for having me, Kate. So I guess this is kind of a prosaic question to start, but just because you do so many things and you work across so many different mediums, also in different realms, I was really curious like how you kind of organize your work and how you decide what is going to be what, if you see it all kind of emanating from one stream and taking, you know, different forms, like how you decide what those forms are going to be, like just what the material aspect, and there's so much variety of the work is or means to you and and kind of how you differentiate between ideas for different mediums. I don't have ever a good answer for that because it's very natural to me. Like almost immediately when I'm thinking about something, there's sort of a form that's a part of the idea or a way that I want to see it enter the world. And so often I start with writing just because that is maybe one of the oldest practices that I have and kind of alongside drawing those are two things I've done since I was very young and they're a way of organizing my thoughts and organizing like maybe my experiences as well and so writing more than drawing at this point I do daily so it's kind of like something I'm always doing and I probably pull from that like Recently, I've been very like paranoid about my notes app, (laughs) like either getting like deleted, somehow disappearing or um, getting into the wrong hands or something like what's in there. But I do, you know, there's ideas I have that are just like they started as like a notes, just a small note. Like right now, I'm just thinking of the mundane Afrofuturist manifesto, which literally I just had a note. I was reading a lot of sci-fi and I was thinking a lot about it and there was sort of this moment a lot of people were approaching me about sort of Afrofuturism and I remember thinking oh it'd be really funny to me to make a manifesto that was after that like Clarion West like speculative manifesto basically and then I did it and then later it became like you know it sort of was a text and then it was a wall mural and then you know, I was approached to make it sort of like a documentary, like for TV. So it takes these different forms, but usually, yeah, it's a writing or it's like a little sketch I make. But so was that note, like the initial note was just mundane Afrofuturism manifesto? Yeah, I was just like, oh, like cover that. I mean, I think that's actually what the note says. It's just I changed the title. Mm-hmm. And for listeners who aren't familiar with that, work of yours or that idea of yours can you describe it a little bit sure and I want to say it was 2004 Clarion West workshop they made a manifesto that was called mundane science fiction manifesto and it was basically parodying some of the tropes that 
often appear in sci-fi and they had a kind of like environmental concern. Like they're interested in like, if we're always thinking about being in outer space, like what happens to earth in those speculations. And sometime between 2011, 2013, I felt like there was a similar thing happening with Afrofuturism. And I basically made a cover, like it's a very direct quotation of their manifesto, but I changed it to sort of be thinking about, there's still like an environmental, I guess, place, but it's also in relationship with like race. And I was thinking directly about kind of how speculation or sci-fi is like a tool used by in black imagination. And that's kind of what I was thinking about and working with at that time. I mean, I still do a lot of stuff with technology, but I feel like there was something novel about it to people that was sort of irritating to me. And I thought their original was really funny. And so I made my own version. It's interesting how, you know, these ideas of yours become motifs in the work or become almost like a, they repeat often and they kind of, I, something I noticed in the show is that you have these stickers that are taken from ephemera from your life, but then just the multiplicity of them almost makes them like some kind of brand and that you put them in conversation with real brands like Celine in some of these boxes and bags that you've made. It's funny as though something that's like very personal becomes almost just by sheer repetition, its own brand or kind of like working in that tension between ephemera and like merchandise. And I know that's something that you also work for brands. You do commercial work and you have ideas about, you know, kind of being a conceptual entrepreneur. So it all seemed to be part and parcel to me. And I'd be curious to hear you talk about that. I mean, my ideas about the entrepreneur bit have changed a lot over the time I sort of started saying that. I don't really say it <laughs> for a long time now, but it's like, it's one of those things that it's like, it's in the world. I can't get rid of it. And I think some of my original ideas still stand, which was basically, I was interested in the way I was specifically interested in like solo it talking about making an idea that becomes the machine that creates the art. And they kind of liked broadening that, that there are these like operations or there's just kind of constraints, like, whether that's in writing or whether that's like you're saying, kind of using these things I collect from my life, which is also something I just have a habit of doing. I love packaging, but I'm also kind of like, I wouldn't say like a scrapbooker. I've never been like that, but I do like keep these little mementos. And usually in my studio, there's like a big wall of them. So it'll be something I'll see all the time on this wall or on my fridge or on my computer. It's like, these images that become part of my day-to-day life and they're saved like scraps from my life. And they feel similarly like maybe personal, but also it's kind of poetic of like the phrase that they say or the colors that are part of them and kind of seeing how much I can push that to be visual and become this like, yes, there's an element about that self-reflexive, but there's also like through the repetition or through this like kind of saturation of it that, can I just use it as like an image and can it become something else? Like, and that's a lot of the ways I start to put those bag sculptures together is like visually or like where they go in the space. How have your ideas about the conceptual entrepreneur changed since you first 
put them out there. When I started saying that I had opened a store, I used to run a bookshop and art space in Chicago that was called Golden Age. And I left art school really feeling like, oh, there's no space for the kind of art that I'm making. You know, I was making like really short form videos. This was like pre-YouTube. I was very on the internet. Part of why I was interested in going to school in Chicago, actually, because they had this art and tech program and, you know, the film, video, new media program. I was making a lot of browser-based work and doing kind of like web art. And so to me, it made a lot of sense. Like, oh, there's going to be these spaces where I make a 30-second video, which like, you know, these 30-second videos that I made are at MoMA right now. But when I was in, I was like an 18-year-old in a very essential cinema kind of film program. They were like, what the fuck are you going to do with, where are you going to show this? You know what I mean? Like that was really the thing. It's like, oh, are you going to show this in between other people's videos? Or like, or you can't really have a screening of something like that. And I was like, the internet, guys. So I don't know. I just didn't feel a lot of support, honestly, from my school. And I didn't see a lot of works. Even there's people whose artworks I love now that I discovered actually doing this project Golden Age, but no one told me about them when I was in school. So I left being like, oh, I'm not an artist. But when I lived in LA, I had worked for Uga Booga like right before I went to school. And so I basically want to open a similar kind of space. And so that was a way of organizing what I was doing. But pretty quickly, I did that project for like five years and we showed a lot of people, but it was really, we met a lot of people. Like that's how I met Hamza Walker, for example, was somebody who was always telling me about different artists or being like, oh, you should check this out. People from out of town were always coming in. There was a real like global exchange with it. So it taught me about a lot of different artists and everyone who came in would always be like, oh, is this your art project? And I was like, no, it's a business. I'm an entrepreneur. This is serious. I was like showing and selling like friends artwork at that time in the beginning of it, but quickly I just sort of realized, oh, this is my art project. And like, there are like models for the kind of work I want to make. And so sort of once I closed that, I was like, oh no, like I would use the word artist, but before it took me this kind of time period to feel like I was doing that. And so when I came back to LA the first time, which was in 2012, it was really with the idea of I had a studio already, but it was like, I had just gotten it. And I was like, I was working for the Astro Gates and I was working for Barbara Caston. And I was like, I'm going to make art. That's what I want to do. And I'm just going to like focus on it because I was doing a lot more art writing, curating, organizing. And what about this thing almost of like, I guess it's not even so much brand name as like iconography that something that's personal or like artistic could then be rivaling something that's super commercial and stands for other things that like you could make, does that appeal to you? Making something that's just instantly recognizable as your own image? Yeah, I think that I feel maybe that's like quite millennial of me to grow up in a time of where honestly like your personal behaviors, tics, tropes, whatever, there is a kind of repetition to it. And I think I also grew up like, around skateboarding, around graffiti, around these other ways of putting your name up, basically. And so I do have a sick fascination for having my name up somewhere. (laughs) And it feels similar, you know, it's like with the tape or with these stickers, it's like I can put it anywhere. It's like something I would do when I was younger on a city. 
And I think with the with the bags and those kinds of things, I mean, in my head, I think of them as trash. Like, I don't think of them as like this precious. It's like, really, I like the material and being able to make these crazy cuts out of them. And it's kind of this, yeah, maybe rivaling it or putting them on the same level as like a receipt. And like, they're all part of this kind of stream. And one thing I do a lot in my videos and like the editing is like thinking about this kind of stream of images that one encounters. Or if you try to translate your experience into a moving image, it's like, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What colors are around you? What is like a feeling that's arising from that? What's the tone? And that's how I like sequence stuff or kind of edit. And so I feel like they put together in a similar way. I mean, it's also, there's the sense too that what you've seen can almost be like this reverse form of portraiture, you know, that like everything that you have seen somehow represents you as well. And I feel like you're playing a lot with kind of different forms of portraiture in the show as well, either through kind of still life photos that are things around your studio, but then also like one of the photos is held up by these tapes, these like cassette tapes, which I thought was almost like a little nod to you, like the variety of tapes. It's like another way of representing you or like your clothes. You have a lot of your clothes mixed into these wall pieces or paintings. And it's like a strange way of representing self. Yeah, absolutely. I think like with this show specifically, I was thinking so much about like a figure, me, this character, but also like sort of being like dislocated or like dysregulated. And I love this displacement, but like with a Y, like similar to dysregulation, which like this historian Kieran Fields has been writing about. I just think it's a, I was experiencing a real dysregulating couple of years, as I'm sure many people have many different ways. I didn't have a home for a while, so I was traveling a lot and I was house-sitting a lot. And I like to travel, (laughs) you know, and I should say, like, I sort of like being mobile in that way. But this was to such an extreme degree, and it was sort of out of my control for a while, that I think that's kind of what it is. It's like a lot of the boxes and materials are like my actual moving boxes. I moved maybe 13 times, something like that. It was intense. And so I think some of the objects to me are almost like, like they were things, they're more like an altar or they're like a symbol of something. And then some of them are like in this stream of like, okay, what does make up your ground when you have no kind of consistency in that way. Like, like a friend of mine who house sat for like five years, I was asking him at one point, I said, how the fuck did you do this? Like, this is crazy. I feel insane. And he was like, okay, you have to choose like one part of the house. That's like your part of the house. And like, that's what you're going to change. And then you have to decide, you know, once a day you're going to do something like you're going to cook a meal. Like you got to get in the habit of like cooking in other people's kitchens. And like, you know, some of it was like, because I was working on projects that I was gone. Some of it was like, yeah, stuff was out of my control. But I think that thread of this idea of displacement is something that people are, and again, in the Karen Fields way, it's like, also I grew up in Los Angeles and obviously the city has changed a ton (laughs) as you did as well, you know? And so like, 
some of that is really strange where it's like the ghost of a building or a shape. So a lot of the photographs, yeah, they're like places I've lived over the last couple of years. And there's this kind of figure that is in it. And I was really interested in like with the clothes. It's like, okay, normally I sort of put them into stuff. They are in the shape of like someone wearing or the pants would be draped on it. But it's like now that that becomes like the field. It also kind of gives new meaning to me to the video the longer video, which is the based on the duckamuck of this girl by the ocean. She's like, I always need to be by the ocean. But then it's like a blue screen and it, which I thought more like it's about like kind of manipulation or the way that diffusing ourselves through different digital technologies and how like unshaky ground that is. But then it also seems like, yeah, it's really also about displacement in that video and that there's not much that is actually concrete and stable for her except herself, you know? Yeah, I wanted to try and make, I've been writing something where a character kind of experiences a sort of psychosis where they aren't sure where they are. First, I was sort of representing it more like, you know, like a beautiful mind or whatever. These more like classic like cinematic you know where the person's like the noise is changing like what do we do where am I who am I I was kind of like when I started working the show I was like oh I should just try and and play with that tone and that episode that cartoon kind of inspired me because there's a part of it that I was like yeah that's what it feels like and okay can I try and like use that as a starting place to explore that feeling And yeah, because I'm using green screen and this kind of compositing, I've been interested in playing with VFX, like Dead, which is another more recent video is all 3D model, like 3D captured. And so I've been interested in just doing more with that. So in this piece, which the title was a Apple note that I think I messed up. It says like, I am wise enough to die things go. But I think it was supposed to say, let things go. (laughs) And I was like, oh, that's a good title. I'll use that. That was sort of how I came to it. I was thinking about, okay, if someone's not sure where they are, they're not sure what's real and what's not real anymore, which is actually how I came across Karen Field's work. I was sort of familiar with her, but there's this idea of place lag, which anyone who travels a lot, they probably experience it. It's like you wake up and you don't know where you are. You know, you could be at a hotel or you could be on a plane or whatever, and you forget actually what city you're in like there's a funny video of Naomi Campbell shopping she's shopping at like Whole Foods and she was like looking for something and then she was like where's like some product that you can only get in a certain country and she's like oh I forgot I'm in New York right now it's that feeling you know so sometimes it's fine it's something really quick like that I happened to be in Minneapolis recently where I was like I look at the skyline I was like I don't remember where I am it's a really weird feeling. So this pilot, he wrote a book about it and uses this term place lag. And she sort of uses that to expand this feeling of dislocation that can happen in an urban setting. And I'm kind of using it in a psychological sense compared to like if someone's loses their grasp on reality. But I'm also interested in like the digital within the material of the video. Yeah, you can manipulate all these things, but I'm kind of showing them. So it's like build something up and then like throw it down. I 
listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Martine Sims about her latest show, Loser Back Home, at Spruce Moggers. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Craig Seligman on the line. Craig is the author most recently of Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag, and he is here to give us a book recommendation. There are many books that I could recommend, but the one that comes immediately to mind is Twilight Man, Love and Ruin in the Shadows of Hollywood and the Clark Empire by Liz Brown. It was published by Penguin Books in 2021. And it fascinates me because it resembles the story that I was telling, not in the sense that it's a story about drag, but that it's a story about a queer life. However, for Liz Brown, it was a lot more difficult to research because we're talking about a queer life early in the 20th century. And she really had to dig through all kinds of documents and archives to find out out what the life of Harrison Post really meant. And she did that quite successfully. So who is Harrison Post? Because I hadn't heard of this book before. Harrison Post was someone you wouldn't have heard of. He was a distant relative of Liz Brown's. She discovered his portrait, his photograph, in a dresser drawer one day and began digging into his life. He was the lover of... One of the Clarks, you may have heard of the Clark Library in Los Angeles. The copper barons that he was associated with also came down to Los Angeles and founded the L.A. Philharmonic. So he was a gay man who lived on the periphery of L.A. society in the 20s and amassed a fortune and then had it stolen from him by his evil sister, who eventually had him committed to an institution. It's a pretty gripping read. Wow. Yes, it sounds like it. And how much was Liz Brown able to fill out this whole story? I would say she filled it out to about the 80% mark, and the other 20% is very, very smart guesswork. (laughs) important for a biographer to be able to do a little bit of that. And she is an L.A. author and it is an L.A. story. That sounds great. Can you tell me the title and the author one more time? Twilight Man, Love and Ruin in the Shadows of Hollywood and the Clark Empire by Liz Brown. Thank you so much, Craig. You're welcome. That was Craig Seligman. His new book is Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Martine Sims. Yeah, I thought that that was very effective just there's this point where she's laughing and then it's like such canned laughter that's just like obviously put in and then it but then there's almost a horror like oh my god like what's coming out of me you know like that way that and similar I was going to say in um the African Desperate there's this really funny scene where Palace suddenly is like inside of one of those videos 
where they're like, let me show you how I put on my makeup in the morning. And you know, she's like showing you, she's like, gotta do my thing. And, and because I watch those type of videos all the time, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the way the re- kind of reflexive way in which the media that you ingest does start to shape the way you see your own reality. You know, and this has been true for me, like way before the internet, like this is, you know, and I think for many people, but now it just seems like that effect is accruing in a really intense way. Yeah. It's like Kino eyes, like the Eisenstein called it, which is like <laughs> the beginning of having a camera, it starts to shape how you you look at the world because you see the image. Yeah, I'm like at the world, I start to see, okay, I can take a picture like this. Oh, the light's like hitting like this. And I think what a lot of what I've been interested in over the last few years is kind of that I started working with a lot of archival material for a long time and then sort of was interested in like making stuff that looked like it was older or from a different era and had these qualities of images. And I think something I've noticed with that is just the way people like personal photography or amateur photography and film, which is a big interest of mine. Someone's home video now, the production value on it is so high quality that there's just a type of image that you just wouldn't even see anymore. And I always use the example of backlighting. That was like sort of a professional photography concept, which is that you wouldn't stand behind the light because you would be in shadow. But because people take their photos all the time, everyone is familiar with that. And everyone kind of knows now that they need to like face the light, like catch the light. And I think, yeah, those those makeup videos, those tutorials, or these kinds of modes of address, it's like you kind of see them all the time. And then when you're like putting on your makeup or doing your skincare routine, it's kind of hard not to imagine. And in African Desperate, I was really like having fun with not so much code switching because I honestly don't haven't found that terminology to be very relevant to my life experience. But like the fact that in different environments, you have to behave differently. And that's also true of like just how you speak. So it's like, I mean, there was all those things during pandemic about people trying to make their Zoom look better. <laughs> like, raise it up, put a ring light, you know, and I've seen some people that have like these really intense like Zoom setups. They look great though. So I don't know, but that's a kind of image manipulation, right? That someone's just doing or filters now, like all these filters that are happening. I wanted to ask about this shirt that the actor is wearing in the video that says to hell with my suffering that I've seen like on other either, you know, digital versions of yourself, or I've seen it like in installations or this phrase, which I, I really am drawn to. And I'd love to hear you talk about it. And also I did think that that it did remind me a little bit of the kind of attitude of palace and the African desperate. The film is really interesting because I feel that there's something going on with her, you know, like, I feel like she's kind of having a hard time in some ways, but it's, (laughs) but it's very like, you know, devil may care. Like she doesn't, it's also not a movie like about her trauma. There's certain sense that maybe she's not perfectly, you know, aligned with everyone that she's in grad school with, or maybe she's treated a little differently, but it doesn't, the movie doesn't seem to be about that in particular. And certainly she has a bit of a I'm fine. I'm fine. Leave me alone. So I would love to hear you talk about just the repetition of the phrase. And then, yeah. The phrase was in my horoscope a few years ago in free will astrology. 
which I love. Shout out Rob Bresny. <laughs> but it was a, it's a Rimbaud quote. And basically I looked up the poem. It's in the poem, Mayflowers. Can't remember the French name right now. But when I saw this horoscope and this was like, this was my thing for that week or whatever. I was like, okay, I have to find this poem. And I read it and it just become like this poem I really love. And I love this idea of, I mean, I'm very taken by the idea of suffering in the sort of Buddhist sense and what's pain and what's suffering. And so it kind of hit me at a time where I was studying that a lot, I guess, thinking a lot about it. But I liked it kind of irreverence. It's less like it didn't feel so like <laughs> woo-woo for lack of better words. It's kind of like a different way of relating to that choice. And I don't know. I'm also very obsessed with hell. I always have been actually. It's like I grew up going to church in a Christian household. So I went to church like two times at least a week. And I probably still could memorize some verses if asked. My first like nightmares and kind of dreams are all about hell. So it's held like this fascination to me. And so there's something about the combination of the two that keeps coming back to me, I guess. Samsara, that's what they call it, right? That's like a way of dealing with that. And yeah, I use a lot of avatars. It's kind of become like the costume that these characters, these more nameless, placeless characters have been doing. And I think with Palace, I mean, I sometimes talk about African Desperate as a comedy about depression. And it's like a way of, I didn't want to be too like prescriptive, but I want to show like a way it can look for people that's more high functioning. And I don't know. (laughs) I don't have anything really smart to say about that at the moment. Just that that's like an experience I've had that I was interested in seeing on screen. Like, what do you do? Just how do you keep going if you're feeling like you have to? like a mode of survival. So there's kind of this like sociability combined with survival combined with what I would call maybe like being sort of fab and like having fun, but also, yeah, it can be distant. I was also thinking it's, you know, sometimes, especially maybe in a more white environment, that if someone is black, it's a little bit like, oh, like they're defined by their suffering and like the racism that they've had. And, you know, it's like, a big middle finger, like you can't, you don't know me, you don't know what I've been through. A little bit like that too, especially, I mean, in the context of the film in which she's in this grad school where it seems like everyone's like, oh, like Palace, have you read Fred Moten, you know? Well, yeah, I think people want to understand you by that lens. So it's also like a way of being like, yeah, fuck that. It's annoying. Or it's like, duh, like, I mean, I don't know why I keep talking about the pandemic today, but (laughs) I guess it's in my head. (laughs) I was just going to say like in 2020, when people are having this, which I call the great white reckoning, it's like people having these realizations that you're like, yeah, dude, but for over 30 years, I have uh, been experiencing these things. (laughs) It's not that revolutionary to me and not to say I don't care about it or it's not a big part of my life or there's not things I'm doing. It's just like, yeah, no shit. And so like sometimes when that's the only way people understand or want to talk about stuff, which I have found in my own work, which is sort of why it's, and Diamond as well, you know, something we were talking about when we were working on film. That's why like it's represented in that way that sometimes you don't want, what else is there? Like how else can you try and read them? Like this feels like very 
limited way of saying it. It feels like a limited way of understanding what I'm doing. You know, I went to Bard actually. So I was like (laughs) loving the film for that alone, that it was where it was set and that it didn't feel like a total satire to me. I mean, because it didn't seem like overblown. It seemed just like spot on accurate in so many ways. I'm just curious, like what that experience was like for you, you know, versus video work. Like I was saying, I still, I felt like you brought kind of an experimental form at times into it, but there's also a story. And I thought, you know, it's like the movie that not that much happens. And yet it's kind of like the timing of it does feel like very fine grained that we're really like moving through someone's experience and that way that a whole day can bring a lot of different things. And it's like, it's just so beautifully done. And it is, it does seem more in that kind of like indie film lexicon or a smaller art film of just being really closely hewn to the everyday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that. thank you. First of all, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but that's what I wanted. I wanted to make, I had been writing this kind of like sapphic sci-fi, like sports epic and working on getting that made since in 2017, I made some called Instant Sweaters and Ice. That was for my solo exhibition at MoMA that happened that year, Project 106. And that had a character and it sort of had like this characters, but it was much more of an art film and it was sort of like made. It was like me and Kat was, was the star in that like driving around together, just her and I for like two weeks, basically. And there's some other, and then part of it I did impact, but it was a much different type of production. And it was also seen on three screens. It was kind of roving. And we did some screenings here and it played theatrically in a few cities in Europe. But at the end of that, I was like, I want to make like a film. I want to make like a studio film. So I was like writing this kind of crazy film for a while, which I do, do hope to make at some point. But there's not that much like crossover between like our world success and like film world. So I just decided I wanted to make a smaller thing that was closer to my experience. And, you know, I love films that are set in one day. And I had always joked that on my first feature is going to be a one day film, like run Lola run or like Lahine or Friday or something like that. And that was more of a joke. I didn't actually think I'd do that. But when it came to write it, it was like a nice way of organizing it. And a lot of it is based on my last day of grad school. You know, I made it more fun because I wasn't having that much fun that last day. (laughs) But I did do a lot of drugs. I definitely did a lot of drugs when I woke up extremely late having to get onto a flight. And so I sort of took, I had these two key moments in my head about upstate but I also think the quality of time there it's like going to the desert or something it's like you'd be there for two days and it feels like you were there for so long like you just get on this different rhythm which I've really come to appreciate it's like being somewhere where it's like stuff's closed or like you just have to be in a different kind of mode than when you're in the city and yeah I wanted to just follow this character like really the character was fleshed out I wrote it for Diamond you know, I co-wrote the film with Rocket Palacio. And when we were writing the script, a lot of Rocket also went to grad school at CalArts and, you know, Diamond's had her own experiences in the art world. And I think we all were having fun writing stuff that would make each other laugh or that were like, yeah, I don't really think of it that satirical because a lot of those things happened. 
you know, like, because there wasn't really anything that was so over the top. Maybe like the dicks. I was joking. But I kind of had had similar things from teaching and from being in art school as a student. But it's like, it wasn't that far-fetched, you know? Yeah, I think when we were writing it, you know, there's a lot of things we sort of knew we were going to make it. We were joking, we were making it like it was 1996, you know, it was like it was self-funded, had some grants, we would be like casting our friends. There's a few, you know, some actors I really like, like Ruby McAllister, who's in it. But yeah, it was like made with love. And it was sort of, we're always joking about passing out a flyer, like, hey, do you want to be in my film? Like, we're shooting tomorrow. So that was the quality of it. But Palace was like the idea to follow this character who was depressed, basically. And it's also like, you're in that transitional moment. I'm kind of interested in mundane (laughs) moments, but also these things you don't see on screen. And I just felt like I hadn't seen a character like that. Who's like this young black woman who's obviously doing well, but also is personally not doing well and like what that can look like. Yeah, I think you captured that really well. Did you like working with actors and kind of having to have more of a realism at times or kind of like an emotional element that you had to coax I love working with actors. It's very fun to me. I started with this Instant Sweaters Nights, you know, I worked with Catherine Reynolds and also Faye Victor, who's a vocalist. She's in it. And then after that, I was doing a lot of training. Actually, I was doing all these acting classes and vocal training. And I feel like there was sort of a period I was doing a lot more performance. And through that. <laughs> I like doing performances, but I like working with actors better. I think it's really amazing. And it adds like such a richness what people bring to it. I just finished actually this the top of the year from January to April. I was in this school, the Identity School of Acting, which is like a British drama school that also has a campus in LA. So it's like something I'm very interested in and I admire a lot because it's like it's just like another way of adding to what you're doing. And I think the first time I wrote this script called Most Days that was released as a record many years ago now, but I worked with actors to read it, do a table read. And I just love, you know, you write something and then you're like, okay, this is how it's going to be. This is what it is. And then you give it to an actor and they're reading it in a way or they're finding different things in it or they're bringing something to the foreground that you're like, oh, wait, that's actually, I like that. That's so exciting to me. So I want to continue working with people. Well, thank you so much, Martine, for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. That was Martine Sims. Her new show, Loser Back Home, is on view at Spruce Boggers in Los Angeles until August 26th. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.